Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Rita Denny and Patricia Sutherland are anthropologists and founding partners of Practica Group, LLC, a consumer research and strategic consultancy based in New York City and Chicago. Internationally recognized as among the pioneers in bringing ethnographic research and anthropological cultural analysis to the contemporary commercial sphere, their insights have helped shape products and brands for many Fortune 500 clients. Traversing boundaries between the disciplines of anthropology and marketing and the many practices of both in business realms, they are sought after as seminar leaders for training programs and guest speakers at both business and academic venues and conferences. Their book, Handbook of Anthropology and Business, is a compilation of essays and works from more than 60 authors, offering broad coverage of theory and practice. The chapters demonstrate the vibrant tensions and innovation that emerge in the intersection of business and anthropology. Hi, Rita. Hi, Patty. Welcome to the New Books on Anthropology podcast. Uh, Today, we're going to discuss your most recent book, which is the Handbook of Anthropology and Business. So I wanted to give you both an opportunity to talk a little bit about yourselves and about the work that you do. And then we can move to the first question, which is why you chose to create this handbook in the first place. Well, Patty, we can start with you. Okay. Hi, Astrid. And just to introduce myself, I'm a anthropologist and partner of Practica Group. I'm located in New York City. Practica is a virtual organization. And I'll let Rita go from there. Hi, Astrid. It's Rita, and I'm sitting in cold and snowy Chicago. Um, And uh, Practica is a company that we started about 12 years ago, and mostly anthropologists, and we work in the commercial consumer research space, uh, analyzing from an anthropological standpoint sort of products and services uh, and brands in people's everyday lives and, and offer strategic advice to clients. And so why did you guys want to create this handbook? Um, so very good question, and we have a variety of different answers to that. Uh, so the first is, and perhaps the most important, is that we were asked to. Uh, so to put together a handbook, the success of the, of, uh, the earlier book, Doing Anthropology and Consumer Research, um, was... Uh, provided, I think, sort of the impetus for the editors at Left Coast Press um, to, to ask us whether we, whether we would consider doing a handbook and putting a handbook together. And they felt that we were in a position to sort of coalesce and bring and synthesize um, a lot of different work. And, and the reason why they thought that was that I think part of the success of doing anthropology was that we brought disparate arenas together. So in that case, it was um, sort of consumer culture theory that comes out of marketing departments, um, anthropology, and commercial consumer research. And so I think the editors felt like we would do the same thing here, but we would have to expand the arenas that we that we sort of tied together. Uh, so um, for us personally, I think that it was a chance for new work to you know to discover new work that people are, were doing out there and connections to people that we didn't know. So we actually felt that we would learn a lot 
Um, and we did. I think we were a bit inundated. And I, I would say that the last reason for why the book and, and why we did it was that it was an attempt to, to both contemplate, but it's sort of like in one place, it was an attempt to contemplate and crystallize what is often invisible. And if not invisible, absolutely fragmented. Um, I think that the handbook shows in its, you know, 43 chapters, um, just sort of how far and why people, anthropologists are sort of uh, distributed in, in the commercial and business space, um, wherever they sit. And, um, and yet what they do, their work is not, you know, often visible to others and to peers. So, so what we really wanted to do um, was to, you know, sort of get people, you know, to, by virtue of the chapters and, and creating a handbook, um, that we wouldn't be so circumscribed by sort of our immediate communities of practice, and that, in fact, we had a chance to observe and see what else was going on. Okay, so I have a slightly related question. It might seem like a simple question, but uh, with anthropology being such a broad discipline, then how would you define business anthropology? Oh, Patty, you can take that one. Yeah, I'll take that one. Um, you know, actually, that question of how we would define business anthropology is a good one. That's even reflected in the title of the book. So we took great pains that we did not call this the handbook of business anthropology, but rather the handbook of anthropology in business, because we thought that to call it business anthropology presupposed a field of endeavor, that there was a field one could call business anthropology that already existed and it was clear what its boundaries were and it was clear what its program was and so on. But what's really going on now and which we reflected in the introduction to the book was that there's actually a myriad of things going on and we then use the metaphor of city to reflect all the kind of old endeavors that have been going on, the new ones plastered on top of it, the different avenues, the different little roads, the buildings. We, we really used that metaphor until we almost tired it out. But we said that what was really going on, what this book was about was looking at the intersection of anthropology and business. And I think a really important point to be made in that is that anthropology itself as a field is not monolithic. There are many kinds of anthropologies. It's very polysemic. There's many things going on. There's many things to ways of interpreting it. And the same for business. That business is not monolithic either. And so there's many things going on in, in business. So that was that's our uh, perhaps long-winded way of answering what we think is business anthropology now. <laughs> Well, I think that's a great answer because what you said is really true, that there's so many different kinds of anthropologists. Um, something else I found really interesting, and I believe that you guys discussed this in the introduction, was that you chose to also include works from sociologists and marketers yeah. and designers in this book, which is usually not the case when there's a book about anthropology. So can you talk a little more about you know why you made that choice and how you thought that would uh, affect this outcome of the book? Well, when we set about thinking of what to include in this book, what would reflect what is going on at that intersection of anthropology and business, it was immediately apparent that it's not just anthropologists working in that space. There are other people 
be they sociologists, designers, marketers, who are doing things that, that touch at that intersection of anthropology and business. And we wanted to include those things because an important part of what we didn't want to do was to recreate the kind of silos of endeavor. So even when we, how we organized the book, how we organized the chapters, we did not want to put it into, for example, organizational approaches or kind of, you know, the organization of the corporation or, and then consumer research, the domain that we know a lot about or design or marketing. We really wanted to kind of mix that up a little bit more and show how those, um, things could mesh and were in, emergent at the, well, emergent is the wrong word there. But the way you used the uh, blurred in the book. Yes, blurred. <laughs> They're more blurred than emergent. So that's why we included many people. And it was also important to us that we included people who were in the academy or, in fact, university based, as well as people who were business based within the organization and business based as consultants. So we really tried to have a mix of all those. In addition, it's also important to note that. And we're obviously located in North America, but we wanted to go beyond North America in our in our um, contributions. So we specifically included a number of people in other countries and included people in the academy in other countries as well as working in applied fields. So that was part of how we cast the net wide. And it's, it should also be said that we we in fact, didn't want to constrain people to how they wrote or the kinds of forms that their uh, chapters took. And there's no question that there's a bit of it through the review process and through the putting together that things become a little, they are chapters, but there's a great heterogeneity in the chapters and we did want to preserve that. Uh, speaking of some of the diversity that you included, uh, one thing I uh -huh. thought that was interesting was that you included work from academic anthropologists, you know, applied anthropologists, and a lot of other works. There's a very distinct difference between being a practicing anthropologist versus possibly an applied anthropologist or just a strictly academic anthropologist. Do you think that that distinction is really as relevant moving forward since there's so much interdisciplinary work going on? You know, I'll take this, Rita, and I'll just jump in here. I think that, you know, what we discovered in the process, and I think we saw before, and as well as sort of in the process, is that those dichotomies are really unproductive, right? So it's, it's they're unproductive to sort of put practicing on one side and academic on the other, or, um, you know, to, to think about, uh, you know, and get into the sort of one of the first sections, you know, sort of qualitative and quantitative or, um, you know, people who are sitting in business schools versus, versus sort of anthropologists, you know, sort of anthropologists on the other side. That, you know, that, that, that sort of a field and theories and practices emerge out of engagement of all kinds and people never can be, you know, one's positionality is never one thing. You're never in sort of one particular box. So, so we felt, you know, pretty strongly that, that, you know, we shouldn't think of um, anything as either or, or, you know, in versus of, or for versus against, that, that it was much more interesting to look at sort of the complexities of engagement rather than trying to box types of engagement. Okay. 
Um, speaking of, you brought up uh, the qualitative and the quantitative. So I had a couple questions about that because there were a few different articles that discussed uh, the need to kind of get rid of the tension between the two types of research and that a lot of the research that's being done now requires that you use both. Is that something that you think will continue, like will, that will stop being that barrier between I'm a qualitative researcher, I'm a quantitative researcher? Or do you think that's specific to, you know, anthropology and business itself? I think it's a very large question, which one of the chapters by Neil Patel, in fact, it's in the first section of the handbook. And he's really taking on, in fact, he's saying it's a misreading of our intellectual heritage that we have, in fact, separated quantitative and qualitative and that they can really be brought together. And as you know, it's a, it's part of the contemporary world. And I think some of that merging, be it things that are happening with big data and the interpretation of meaning in big data, which is would be a way of bringing in the qualitative into the quantitative, that they are dichotomies that that need to be overcome. I and I would say that we are not going to overcome them tomorrow. <laughs> it is it's exceedingly unlikely. Those are long-standing divisions that play out in people's positions and their training and so on. But one one way that I I would note about it one way around it, and it also gets back to the question you had before about a seeming difference between academic analyses and professional analyses or applied analyses, is that is Dominique Desjardins formulation of different scales of observation. So he's making the point that if you're looking at a micro scale, sort of individual interactions or a Meso scale, maybe institutions or a macro scale, whole socioeconomic formations. What you see at different scales of observations are simply different things. It's not that they're opposing, but you, each one allows you to observe things that you couldn't observe on the other scale with the other scale or lens of observation. So that we're in a very strange point with the quantitative and qualitative where on the one hand they're seen to be opposed, and on the other hand, they're used to validate one another. Mm-hmm. So, in fact, that's Zimmeron. But uh, I, I, I think that we almost we need to get beyond. We need a different paradigm. There needs to be a shift that's even beyond thinking of the, them as opposed. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, I had a kind of related question to that, which was uh, different chapters in the book discussed the tension that occurs when you're an anthropologist working in a business or working in a business setting because of the fact that your expectations for your deliverable are not really the way that you've been trained. Usually anthropologists deliver some sort of research that's supposed to bring some sort of enlightenment to whatever the subject matter is. But if you're working in a business setting, then your deliverable may be a product or a service. And so at what point does that start to change and not be anthropology anymore? Or is that just an opportunity for anthropology to start adapting again to a different environment? Um, 
I actually think that's a really crucial issue because it's one of the things that we highlight in the introduction to the first section of the book is that part of the identity of anthropologists is is being that researcher, being the elucidator, and not the one who creates products or services, as, for example, design has done. And, and it's a crucial part of the identity of anthropologists as an anthropology as it exists now. And there has been, a, a, at least in the United States, a very non-interventionist stance. It's a little different in places like Scandinavia, but in the U.S., has been a non-interventionist stance unless it was in favor of the less powerful or um, like a disenfranchised, mm-hmm. right? That then there could be an interventionist stance, but otherwise, no. That was and that the identity of an anthropologist was just to elucidate this sociocultural. And I do, and a crucial part in business realms is usually solving a problem or creating a product or a service and so on. So it does get at the heart, it does get at the heart of perhaps anthropologists need to bring into their own identity as a little more interventionist than has been in the past. Do you think that that's something that will happen over time, like the adoption of maybe a different way of defining your deliverable as an anthropologist will happen? Or do you think that it will just kind of merge um, into interdisciplinary fields. There was a section that was discussing how some universities are merging the anthropology uh, curriculum into, you know, other fields like design and marketing, and it's all taught together. Do you think that that's where we're headed, or do you think it's more like an opportunity for anthropology itself to start adapting some of these new things into the way that they finish out their projects and their research? You know, I think that it's a, it's a, it's a new opportunity for anthropology. And, you know, one chapter in particular sort of takes your question on after, which is, um, at the very end of the book, actually, um, Odell and Willem, Odell and Willem's book on, um, uh, a, uh, masters in applied cultural analysis that, that has been put together at the, um, University of Lund. And, and what, the, you know, they shift the metaphor. So, so they think of sort of the deliverable or the product or what's being produced by the research as a composition, you know, sort of rather than a book. And we're all kind of text-based and we think books, we think papers, like we think words. And they, they really, you know, they make the, I think, kind of persuasive argument that, that we need to think of it as, um, as a, as kind of composition in a, in a musical sense. And what goes along with that is not only are you, you know, you have an interventional role, as Patty mentioned, but that there's a real sense of, of human engagement in the endeavor and you with your client, right? So that, 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 that kind of, uh, and that that needs to be recognized and embraced. And, um, it doesn't mean that you lose your own perspective as the anthropologist, but that you are sort of engaging to persuade. Um, and, uh, and with that, you know, the possibility of impact. So I think that that metaphoric composition is an interesting one. Okay. Um, throughout the book, you kind of make reference to these vibrant intersections of anthropology and business. So yeah. one question I had is, why do you think anthropology has been brought into business in the first place? Well, yeah, <laughs> it has read a size. It's a, it's a 
it's a it's a very big question. Um, and I guess why, so why anthropology has been brought into business, you know, in a way we take that on in the boundaries breached and blurred section. And there are a number of ways to answer that. Uh, you know, Simon Roberts in his chapter, he's looking at the UK and he spoke about the way that it is also tied to the academic marketplace of anthropology in that at one time in, in the UK, there were a few universities that trained anthropologists. So however much business might have wanted anthropology or however much anthropologists might have wanted to work in business, there just simply weren't that many anthropologists. And the anthropologists that were produced tended to go to faculty positions as other universities opened up and began creating anthropology. Now, once those universities created anthropology, that also made more anthropologists. So there were, in fact, more, just, just looking at it as a numbers game, there were more anthropologists who could work in positions in business. And at the same time, there were other socioeconomic factors that came into play, where in the UK, at least, funding for anthropological research included... The, a lot of the funding said it needs to have a positive impact on the on the economy. So you also got more projects that were favorable to business and that had a sort of business end to it. So that's one way things can happen. And as a very, very different example, anthropology and consumer research, the terrain that we know a lot about, you know, that was happening in the 40s and 50s. And with uh, Social Research Incorporated from the University of Chicago, they began consulting for businesses. That kind of, you know, got buried after a while. In the late 70s, early 80s, that erupted again in New York. A sort of important node is uh, Steve Barnett and the work he did with advertising agencies and so on. We just call it Madison Avenue. And in fact, you know, began our lineage and then design began to take on ethnography and anthropologists became involved with design. There's, of course, the whole developments of Xerox Park. So there are many different trajectories, but by and large, they were both activities of individual anthropologists as well as socioeconomic forces that allow the sort of readiness for an anthropological voice to be incorporated. And, and I would just add another one as well. And, and, um, probably raises some larger questions. But but I think another aspect of the take-up of anthropology in business was businesses' own conceptualization of their own needs and, and their own imagination, you know, sort of their imaginary of what anthropology is. So, as, you know, Lucy Suchman has talked about this quite a lot, but that anthropologists are sort of brought into the corporation in, in that guise of, or, or in that position of discovery anew and, um, you know, what you hadn't heard, you know, what, what you hadn't thought about or looked at before. And Sarah Wilner takes this apart in, in her analysis of how journalism um, and the trade press has, has uh, conceptualized anthropology um, in, in the handbook. But, but that notion of kind of discovery and that you can do something sort of new is a combination of both how larger public viewed anthropology, right, discovering new cultures out there or digging in archaeology, and and perhaps 
uh, company's own view of what their own process is for competitive ed. So, um, it's, it's, so I think I think that's another strand in terms of, of an overall rhetoric that. And I will, you know, I would also add to this because this was one of the points of our book. Another silo in this was anthropologists being hired into marketing departments and the whole consumer culture theory that has developed in marketing departments, which has a strong anthropological voice by literal anthropologists as well as others who have taken on that kind of cultural analytic framework. And it's a, it's, it's a, it's a small but vibrant part of, of marketing and a part that sometimes some other anthropologists working in business haven't seen. So I think that there's, there's many, it's like different nodes, different located or in our city metaphor, different buildings, different roads, different intersections, but they're all part of what's creating the currently vibrant arena or terrain of anthropology and business. And we're hoping in fact for cross-pollination and cross-discussion among players who are working in these different arenas. Yeah. Um, one thing that uh, has I've noticed a lot lately is it seems like businesses are very interested in ethnography. They want to hire ethnographers and they have, you know, job titles for that now, whereas maybe five years ago you wouldn't have seen, you know, ethnographer as a job title. Uh, but throughout the, the book, there's different talks about the decoupling of ethnography and anthropology. So now you can call yourself an ethnographer and maybe not be an anthropologist, but how do you think that that is affecting anthropology in business? No, that metaphors chapter on that decoupling of anthropology and and ethnography, I think is, um, and it starts off the book, if I recall, um, I think it's a really important chapter. And I think speaks to, uh, the danger um, that, or, or speak to the importance, let's not call it danger, but speak to the importance of, I think, retaining an, anthropo- an anthropologically inflected voice in what you do. So, so if, in fact, um, you know, that, that as Father points out, there are good reasons why, you know, from the discipline perspective, why this decoupling perhaps has taken place, for those who work in enough business, I think it's, it's that, you know, maintaining a productive tension of one's voice is crucial to the success and to the future. Um, and, um, you know, that, 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 you know, I am a proponent that, that language performs the future. So how you talk about what you do and sort of the nature of the work that you're doing for your internal clients or for your consulting clients, um, and, you know, sort of actually matters. Um, so, so in that sense, we need to, the people who are working in this field um, or in, in various intersections in the city need to be um, cognizant and sort of committed to to maintaining that voice. And whether you don't need to be an anthropologist to have an anthropologically inflected voice, right? So the commitment, I think, is to a sense of cultural analysis or social analysis uh, rather than, you know, sort of a label as mm-hmm. such. Um, so now that a lot of anthropologists who are working in business are working in these interdisciplinary teams, then how do you think that you can stay relevant 
when you're, you know, as an anthropologist and like how you were speaking with having that anthropological voice, when your teamwork and your field work is being influenced by other disciplines and also your deliverable might be something different than what you were kind of trained to do. So how do you stay relevant and keep that voice? I mean, I think that what this gets to in many ways, if it part, again, it gets to your past question as well, because it's in part being an anthropologist was to do ethnography or to be an ethnographer mm-hmm. and Ethnography, you could say, is a methodology, as it's been termed in business. It's not the book you write. It's the methodology of participant observation. But but what has been important for anthropologists and what it seems the anthropological voice and the continued contribution that anthropologists can have is really the analytic framework. And what the, what the anthropological framework continues to give in many business circles is a is a look beyond the individual focus. So sometimes in business it's and even policy realms and service realms, it can it can be an individual focus of of an issue. So a consumer's needs or a patient's needs and so on. And there in it in the handbook there are chapters, for example, by Sophie Alamy about healthcare in France or Lucy Kimmel about policy in the UK in which a major contribution that the anthropologists can give is to always remember to look at larger socioeconomic things and representations and other actors in that network rather than just the individual. And it seems that that's one of the main contributions that anthropologists continue to bring. So it's their analytic frameworks and it's their perspective that is is still crucial. And that, I would say, is also a way of keeping your anthropological voice. So after putting together all these different essays and into this handbook, has this in any way affected the way that you guys do your own research? It's a good question. I think (laughs) it's probably too early to tell because we're still in the recovery phases of working on this handbook. Because... Because, in fact, a very important thing, if the one, one important difference, perhaps, for those who are located in the academy versus those who are located in professional world, is that the writing one does is not the, the, the product that is the nature, the writing that one does, like putting together this handbook or even our former book, that's not the product of our work, per se. In fact, I have, I, I hate to admit this, but I think most of our clients don't care. <laughs> they really don't care that we even wrote those books. The fact of those writings at best is like, oh, that's a good thing that you did. But it's not our, our, our product or our currency. So, um, so what that means, the reason I said we're still recovering is just that it, it's a, it's like a second job. And that is, in fact, you know, hats off to all of the, the professional anthropologists and other in socio- sociologists and so on that are trying to still write and discuss and be part and be part of that sort of interdisciplinary discussion between academic and applied anthropology because it's really a second job. <laughs> and then I have a next to the last question, which is how would you advise an undergraduate student who's interested in 
being an anthropologist working in business? Rita, do you want to start? <laughs> yeah, so uh, ask, ask, have them ask their library to order the Handbook of Anthropology. <laughs> yeah. um, and, you know, this this uh, comes back to, to something that, that you had sort of queried us early on, Astrid, which is sort of how we decided to organize the book, because I think the advice to the, the undergraduate is sort of contemplating this book, um, you know, it, it you know, can, can happen in a variety of ways, but you know, so for example, the last section, which we call sort of muses for engagement, uh, you know, which really speaks to what keeps people going, what, what sparks their interest and what keeps people going and sort of what, what the tension and sometimes angst is, um, it perhaps is a good place to start. I think we say that in the first introduction, actually, to the book that you could start with the end. Mm-hmm. And for young undergraduates, you know, that might be, might be the place. Um, and, the, the third section, which we call applying the trade, are basically case studies um, in so many different realms, you know, whether it's beer or airplanes or oil rigs or wherever. So so for undergraduates to be able to see just the, the incredible diversity of the sort of positions that people are sitting in globally, um, anthropologists that are, you know, sort of the kinds of work that they do, as well as sort of the aim of that work, you know, whether it's sort of work practices from the inside or whether it's a sort of brand strategy or whether it's, it's policy making. So, so I think that that, um, uh, you know, so, so for, the, for the young undergraduate, I would say that those two sections are perhaps the places to start just in very practical terms to, to get the lay of the land. And I would also add that being realistic for the anthropologists that are working in business, as a rule, the people, people, it's master's degrees and beyond. So another thing the book can offer undergraduates is a look at some of the programs. For instance, the program at the University of North Texas, is there's a chapter in the book, and you can see some of the programs that are available for master's degrees in anthropology and uh, business realms. And there are also a number of programs going on that are designed in anthropology at the master's level. So there's, there's a, as Rita says, there's a, the book can show a number of ways that undergraduates can go. There's a myriad of opportunities. There's also very different academic trajectories that people can take. And finally, I think that a good preparation can be to work in any business or work for any business and then go back to anthropology. And so here's my last question, which is for each of you. Uh, What are you working on next? Like, what are you excited about coming up in the future that you can talk to us about? Um, Let us know that. And then any way that you may want someone to contact you. Rita, you can start. Uh, I will start that one. Uh, Coming up next is a, uh, actually a really kind of exciting project um, in which we'll have the opportunity to contemplate um, modes of transportation, uh, sort of from a from an anthropological perspective, um, in that will have applications for sort of innovation and product development like ten years down the line. So it allows us to be in a space that is very exploratory. It, it actually speaks to what Patty, you know, mentioned earlier that, you know, what, what the anthropologist likes 
to cut, you know, sort of the way an anthropologist thinks and what they bring to the party is in terms of the social relations and social assemblages. And um, so thinking about transportation as a social system is a, is a kind of an interesting thing. And Patty? Myself, I guess it, it pulls on the U.S. is not the center of the universe, which we wanted to hopefully bring out in the handbook. And the, the, the beyond project work, the next thing that I'm embarking on is a slightly extended stay in Ethiopia with the hope of learning uh, some more Amharic, which we'll see how that goes. <laughs> That sounds so cool. Well, thank you, Patty, and thank you, Rita, for joining me today on this podcast and for writing this amazing book. Thank you, Esther. Thank you for having us. It was a pleasure. You've just been listening to an interview with Rita Denny and Patricia Sutherland, editors of the Handbook of Anthropology and Business. Their work is available now through Left Coast Press.